on this episode of the London Lyceum. We talk with Dr. Thomas Dixon about passions and emotions. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is a passion, what is an emotion, what is an appetite, what is an affection, and what the history is behind the changing landscape of these terms, particularly during the 19th century. We cover things like what does Augustine and Aquinas think about them? Are they similar to how we think about them today? Was emotion created? When was this created as a category? Was it created as a category? What happened there? What would Augustine and Aquinas even think about this category? And what is the value of the category of emotion? Would it be better to go back to older ways of thinking and speaking? And how can history help us to think about emotions well? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can just up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast and really online center that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And in being serious, we wanted to cultivate sort of an intellectual culture. And there are things that we've tried to prize and promote, things like charity, things like curiosity, things like critical thinking, and for us, cheerful confessionalism. We're not always perfect at that, but we think we need more places in the online sphere that are promoting both of these uh, poles of thinking. We want to be rigorous in our argumentation, but we also want to be kind in how we interact with people and honest in, with how we interact with people. We don't want to just strawman them to death. We want to look at the best part of their arguments. And we want to be curious about all things. So I think that is a disposition that if you look in you know, the old stuff, curiosity is like a vice. But when we talk about curiosity, we mean it in the positive sense of being open to reason, interested in other people's arguments, understanding why they say what they do so that we can be- get a better grasp and appreciation for all things. So Today, I'm really excited to introduce you all to Dr. Thomas Dixon. He's got a ton of interesting work, but we're going to focus particularly on his stuff on passions and emotions and secular psychological categories. I think this, for me, is super, super interesting, and a lot of our listeners are particularly interested in these sort of things, so I think you guys are going to really enjoy this. I know the book's a little bit old now, but you should still go get it, so it's called From Passions to Emotions. I'll link to it in the show notes so you can go get a copy of it. I know half of you guys listening right now probably have already clicked the link to go buy it, so this is going to be fun. So, Dr. Dixon, before we jump in, can you just give me a brief overview, who you are, what do you do now, and what made you really particularly interested in thinking about these sort of categories? Thanks very much, Jordan. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, Yeah, my name is Thomas Dixon, and I'm currently a professor of history at Queen Mary University of London. I noticed this is the London Lyceum, by the way, this podcast, so I feel at home as a a Londoner. Um, And there I direct the Centre for the History of the Emotions, and I teach various topics in history of ideas and cultural history. Um, So I've been with emotions kind of my whole career, really in one way or another. Uh, And it's appropriate to be on this theologically themed podcast for me, because it all started in theology and religious studies. So my undergraduate degree was in theology at Cambridge in England. And my PhD 
which became the book that you've kindly mentioned and recommended, um, was in the Faculty of Divinity at Cambridge. So my, my history colleagues these days sometimes surprised to discover that my origins is in sort of divinity and religion um, from a scholarly point of view. And from there, um, I got into the history of emotions more broadly. But my starting point was what we're talking about today, which was thinking about theological versus secular ways of thinking about everything, but especially the mind and the body and emotions. That's that's very awesome. So bef before we get started, maybe we just start with some lay of the land on these terms. So thinking about passions, thinking about emotions, appetites, affections. I think most people who aren't familiar with a lot of the terminological stuff, they'll hear emotions and they have some sort of intuition about that. Uh, as far as passions, it's pretty thin, I think, compared to what the historical meaning behind that is. So just help me understand what those terms are supposed to mean in their context. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll launch in with a few sort of introductory ideas and you just ask me if you want some more detail or if I haven't said any of the things you'd like to hear more about. So for me, let me start with a sort of anecdote which, which gets to the heart of it, hopefully. During my PhD, um, around the end of the first year of my PhD, my supervisor asked me to tell him, you know, what does St. Augustine of Hippo think about the emotions? Because I was kind of getting into the theory of emotions generally and I'd been reading Augustine. And I had this kind of light bulb moment, which is, I can't tell you what St. Augustine thought about the emotions, because that was not a category that he had, right? I mean, so far he didn't speak English, <laughs> but even in, um, in, in Latin or Greek or ancient languages that the people I was studying at that time were writing in, there isn't an equivalent of the emotions. The emotions will come on to, to the, 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 what that is, but it's a very modern psychological category that really only comes to prominence in 19th century thought and afterwards, especially in English uh, through secular psychology. So that was the, the moment for me was, okay, so Augustine doesn't have the emotions. So what does he have? Um, and I started sort of trying to tease out the differences between the terms that Augustine uses and Aquinas and a lot of other Christian thinkers. And to start with the most important distinction, there's a distinction between what we might call passions of the soul in Greek, pathe, in Latin, passiones animae, um, the passions of the soul is a massive classic category. Um, and these are troublesome. They're often figured in Christian writing as sinful or occasions of sin, lust, rage, wrath, anger, indeed curiosity, which you mentioned might be a potentially sinful passion if it's done wrong. And then on the other hand, these sort of gentler, milder affections, affectus, affectiones in Latin, um, which are gentler feelings. They might include love, joy, charity, sympathy, uh, family sentiment. So that was my starting point, I guess. The big picture was this, the, uh, and the book is called From Passions to Emotions, but the PhD was called From Passions and Affections to Emotions. I, I guess the publisher thought that was too many words in the title. Um, but that's a big part of my point, is there's this distinction between troublesome passions and gentler affections in both secular and Christian thought in ancient writings. And then the emotion sort of wipes out that distinction. There's a lot of other things we could say about what happens with that transition as well. But that that's a useful starting point, hopefully. Okay, yeah, that is that is helpful. So I do want to move a little bit towards that sort of historical landscape that you mentioned. Uh, the changing of these terms during what I think is the 19th century I mean, what does Augustine and Aquinas sort of think about them? Are they similar? Are they dissimilar? How do they differ? And then we'll yeah. we'll go on, move on from there. Yeah. Well, actually, because I was um, 
as you say, this work is quite a long time ago that I did this. I was doing my PhD 20 plus years ago. Um, uh, so I've been revisiting some of some of it to remind myself. And I came across what I think is a really helpful um, section from Aquinas in which he talks about what I've just been saying and puts it very nicely. And this is, you know, um, from Aquinas himself. So this is what he says um, in making this distinction I'm talking about. He says the words love, desire and so on are used in two senses. Sometimes they mean passions, there he says passiones in Latin, with some arousal in the soul. This is what the words are generally taken to mean, and such passions exist solely at the level of sense appetite. So that's the body, that's our senses, that's our very human passions. But they can also be used to denote simple attraction, he calls that affectus in Latin, without passion or perturbation of the soul. And such acts are acts of will, and in this sense, the words apply to angels and to God. So I could probably spend the rest of the podcast interpreting uh, that quote from Aquinas. Um, but that's a really nice illustration of passions and affections or affects are different. And God can have acts of will, which are affect, which is sort of, it's hard to say, well, we're getting way ahead of ourselves here, maybe we're getting onto the theology of it already, but it's hard to say what those states are for God and the angels, because in human in the human case, we're very familiar. You've got sweaty palms, you've got a racing pulse, you've got bodily uh, symptoms of these passions and the perturbations. Um, but it's important for Aquinas to be able to distinguish between the passion sense and the, the gentler, more more voluntary and more angelic sense. Okay, that's, that's very helpful. So when does the term emotion come on the scene and how does that, is that distinguished from these other terms? Yeah. Okay, so um, I think I'll give you a few little potted highlights here. So émotion is a French term. Uh, that's its origin in terms of the modern uh, European uses of it. Uh, René Descartes is a, a very early user of that term, émotion, to mean something like what we mean by emotions. So that's in the 17th century in his Treatise of the Passions. That's not exactly the same as the modern usage, but it's an early, early usage that's similar. Then in English... The word emotion, just as a word at all, comes into English in the very, very late 16th um, and early 17th centuries through translations of French works, including Montaigne's essays. And it doesn't mean emotion at all. It doesn't mean what we mean. It's not psychological. It means a disturbance, like an emotion in the leaves of a tree when the wind blows through it. Or it starts to mean like a, a social disturbance, an, a riot, an unrest, an emotion among the people. And then the final stage, uh, it starts to have the psychological feeling type meaning um, that we now are familiar with in the 18th and 19th centuries. So great philosophers of the mind in the English language like David Hume and Adam Smith, who are Scottish, which is not a coincidence. That seems to have sort of started in Scottish uh, texts. They're using emotion to mean something like emotion as we would understand it and then just to finish that this bit of the story according to me um that there's that there's a, a series of lectures by a guy called dr thomas brown um delivered in the university of edinburgh in the 1810s up to 1820 when brown dies which i suggest is sort of the foundational text of the emotions as this massive and, and fundamental psychological category um brown has three uh, categories for the all mental states, and one of them is emotions. And then that's picked up by people like William James and Charles Darwin in these um, important scientific psychological texts later in the 19th century. So that is how we get the emotions 
broadly speaking. That's that's very helpful. And I think you have a book on Thomas Brown, don't you, as well? Yeah, well, so Thomas Brown, I, I'm very fond of Thomas Brown. He's sort of, um, he's this relatively minor figure, but he was a very big deal in, in 19th century Scotland. Um, and more widely, he, he was he was read and admired by, as I've said, William James and other people. There, yeah, I, I think that I have a, an edited paperback selection of the writings of Thomas Brown. I'm th- Those of you who are, who, who are listening, who are doing... Um, postgraduate work or doing a PhD, you know, you kind of you come across these figures, you become very fond of them. They become like your special person. <laughs> so Thomas Brown is that is that for me? And I, I spent years finding out everything I possibly could about Thomas Brown. There's also an eight volume collected life and works, which is like a collector's item, which I don't think anybody owns or should own, to be honest. Uh, but the paperback selections is is maybe a handy thing. Okay, very awesome. So, uh, how? Uh, was there any particular unified approach to how Christians responded to sort of this changing of the terminology of emotions uh, in this period? Yeah, well, so this is a really interesting question. And I've got a chapter in my, in my From Passions to Emotions, there's a chapter about the sort of Christian responses to the new paradigm, the new sort of secular emotions paradigm. So yeah, so the book starts off with Augustine and Aquinas and like the classical Christian view. Then there's these 18th and 19th century developments, which are largely secular, but not entirely. And we should come back to that, actually, like Jonathan Edwards on religious affections and things. But then I do have a chapter also on like the Christian response. And I think, again, your listeners might be particularly interested in this because it must be a dilemma for theological students and thinkers today. You know, how do you respond to the dominant, um, as it has been in most uh, you know, sort of Western culture for centuries now, the dominant secular view of the mind, which is which is built on these foundations, which are very different from the the the, the biblical and the the Christian view of the mind. Um, I'll, I'll say a bit about about what happened in, in my sort of story in a second, but I, I'm always struck when I hear um, church leaders talking in terms of mental health um, and so on. I've ju- we've just had world mental health, not world. I don't know if it's international, if it was just in the UK. We had Mental Health Day yesterday, Mental Health Awareness Day. Um, at the time of recording, that is uh, the, the 10th of October, I think it was yesterday. Um, and I'm struck when I hear these pronouncements from like the Archbishop of Canterbury or whatever, which seem to me to sort of be buying in totally to the medicalized mental health, psychiatric kind of way of talking about human beings. And it always takes me aback rather since partly because my PhD was about the sort of secularization of thought about the mind and how that might be problematic for Christians. Uh, so there now seems to exist this kind of dual track of where you might try and talk in a, in, in a sort of biblical Christian theological way about human beings, or you might just wholeheartedly adopt depression, anxiety, self-care, uh, and this completely modern and secular view of, of what's going on with human beings. And having said all that about right now, I think you see the same thing when you go back to the 19th century sources. You see some people, um, and you'll have to go to my book to get chapter and verse on which theologians were which in 19th century uh, Britain. But some people are digging their heels in and saying, this is all wrong. We're not evolved animals. We're not just brains. We are not um, machines. You can only understand what human beings are like if you think about the soul, if you think about um, maybe the passions of the soul still using what was by then old-fashioned language. And then on the other hand, you've got people who, as there always have been, you know, uh, wanting to embrace scientific knowledge and so are adopting this language of psychology and the emotions, but doing so within broadly sort of Christian framework. And then they have the problem that I've just been talking about is how do they stay true to their 
um, confessional understanding of human beings while adopting modern psychological knowledge. An interesting figure who comes to mind in that category, there are a couple who are in North American. There's um, George Trumbull Ladd and James McCosh, um, who, who your listeners could look up, both of whom were quite important academic figures in 19th century uh, America who wrote books about psychology while trying to maintain their Christian interpretation of it. So when thinking about emotions, how it's defined today uh, versus what's happening in the 19th century. So I've, I've got a book here from R.T. Mullins, who recently came out called God and Emotion. And he defines an emotion as a mental state that involves an evaluation that has a positive or negative effect. And that implies that emotions have two cognitive features, sort of like a cognitive component, a, and a, an effective component. Do you, it's sort of, so it's sort of like this, you know, it, it's what the emotion's about and there's a feeling, what it's like. Does that map on in any sense to how you think of the 19th century? Is that a development, a change? Is that even representative of how people think about it today? I, I, I'm not sure. Okay. Well, there's a lot of questions in there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, Take no, the I'm just, sitting, one. I'm just sitting here trying to try to keep up. Um, no, but let's, you know, that's what this episode is about, right? So let's get yeah. into this. What is an emotion? Let's do this, right? Let's, let's find out what is an emotion. Um, William James wrote a very, very famous article in 1884, the, 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 the philosopher and psychologist William James, called What is an Emotion? And that's a great reference point, I think. So we can, we can let's start with what William James in 1884, and this is still a relatively new psychological category. What does he say? Um, well, what he says is our emotion, an emotion, is our conscious awareness of a bodily change, um, a visceral change in, in our internal processes. So, for example, he says, this is very famous, many of your listeners may already have heard of this, you know, but he says, we, our natural way of thinking about the emotions is we see a bear, we're afraid, and then we run. Uh, but in fact, what is happening, William James says, is we see a bear, we run, and then we feel afraid. So the, the emotion is in some way a sort of an after effect or a side effect of just our body doing its thing, our body following its instincts and its reflexes. So that that is quite a radical sort of reduction of the moral and intellectual content of our emotions. You know, It sort of reduces them to... It's visceral, instinctive things, and we're sort of, as an afterthought, we're sort of aware of them in our conscious mind. So that, in a way, is quite an extreme and reductionist view of emotions as bodily reflexes. So that's one answer. Our emotions are sort of instincts. They're hardwired. And into that tradition, you would have basic emotion theorists who say everyone in the world's got the same five or six basic emotions. They've always been the same. They're the product of evolution. Um, and, and instinctively, this uh, instinctively, uh, yeah, um, it makes some sense intuitively. You know, if we're evolved, we, we evolved in particular environments and we needed to respond to the environment in certain ways. It would make some sense that we have instincts to respond to danger or loss or the need to approach uh, or bond with another person, and that these would be quite deep in our evolved self. But so that, that's William James' sort of evolutionary view. The standard sort of theoretical view to put alongside or in opposition to that would be something more like what you just um, quoted there, Jordan, which is a more cognitive view, which is, um, it can be phrased in different ways. So you say emotions are beliefs, or emotions yeah. are judgments, or emotions are appraisals, or emotions are um, evaluations. Yeah, the uh, evaluations one I've heard. 
evaluation. So <clears throat> I mean, that appeals to me more um, as uh, uh, partly as a historian, but also someone who, who, who takes emotions seriously as sort of cognitive things. That, that, that chimes more with my experience as well. You know, that our emotions are telling us what we believe about the world. Um, then they're, they're not these sort of content free reflexes. They're quite complicated. And, and uh, anyone who's a parent who sees their children develop, you know, emotions go from being pretty basic like hunger and tiredness to being these much, much more complicated things, which are to do with their beliefs about themselves, their beliefs about the world. Um, so take the really simple example of you see a bear and you run, you're afraid, the William James example. To reframe that in more cognitive terms is you see a shape in the forest, your brain quickly appraises it as it's an animal, and then quickly appraises it as oh, it's a bear. I know about bears, not from evolution, but because I learned about them by watching a documentary. Um, and I know that bears are really dangerous and they might eat me. And I also know that the right thing to do is etc. etc. So there's a whole load of cognition going on, probably a lot of it unconscious. Um, and then there's much more fundamental beliefs like I don't want to be eaten by a bear. I want to stay safe for the sake of myself and my children. Uh, so that way of looking at emotions, even such a basic thing as running away from a bear, it, it encourages us to see how emotions give us information and are built on a lot of beliefs about the world. And if you then get to an emotion like love of a child or love of God or uh, love of your country, or those much more culturally complex emotions it's 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 even more obvious to see how they build into them values and beliefs yeah so in your opinion would it be useful i mean is, is the category of emotion a helpful addition to sort of the toolkit of thinking about human persons and all that goes with it or is it would it be better to go back to the more older sort of language that includes like passions and appetites etc well, uh, one of the advantages of having made the transition from theology and religious studies to history is I don't need to have opinions about this kind of thing anymore. So other people could decide whether it'd be good or not. I'm just in the business of documenting what happened, but I'm not going to dodge the question completely. Um, I mean, but as a historian, I do tend to say, look, the, you know, this is as a good Stoic, I can see this is utterly beyond my control. <laughs> yeah, that's languages right. change, categories change, and we 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 have to roll with it, don't we? And we go with it. And 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 one of the things I like about people who are rethinking emotion theory and affect theory all the time is they're just joining in this ancient human activity of reshaping our categories, reshaping the way that we describe our world, and it'll never end. Well, maybe it will end one day, but for the moment, it's it's an ongoing an ongoing activity, and it, it, it's always changing. And so in a way, I'm resigned to that. And there's not much point in thinking, wouldn't it be nice to go back on you? We're not going to change it. Having said which, um, I do think um, some things were lost with the with the introduction of emotions and the the uh, the, the loss of that distinction between passions and, and affections. Um, but people find other ways around it. I mean, it's not as though we modern people have no other words for our feelings. We've got plenty of words. We, we still know what it means, sort of, to talk about passions, affections, sentiments, sympathy, empathy, feeling. Um, we're not short of words, and people can do creative and intelligent things to make it clear what they're talking about. So um, it's not that once the word emotions arrives, we're incapable of intelligent or, 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 or subtle thought on the topic. But I do think that putting this huge array of things in this one massive container was unhelpful for various reasons. Yeah. Maybe I'll just mention one um the one which i do think has had pernicious effects which may well have happened in other ways anyway um is the loss of the sense of pathology 
Uh, So the word passions has pathology built into it etymologically pathé passions it's about being passive it's about suffering and it's also yet yeah, the same the same root as pathology um and that points to the, these are things which are for some people diseases uh they are morally ambiguous at best or, or bad um they're troubling they are to be resisted they are dangerous the emotions are very uh in terms of their lexical sort of network and, and their sort of semantic register emotions are very anodyne they're very neutral um and if anything positive uh and that seems to me to encourage an inappropriately uncritical attitude to this huge range of more or less all human experience right i mean emotions is almost everything it's quite hard to put a put finger on any moment in the day when you're not emotional one way or another even if it's quite a calm uh happy emotion um, and I don't know whether you've seen these, but one thing I see a lot and I've started sort of complaining about is these sort of motivational memes that say things like your emotions are valid. I think that is not a helpful message for anybody. And partly because the emotions is, it's, it's everything. It's, it's all your feelings. And I just don't think it's a helpful message to people. Your emotions are valid, but all of them, all of them? No, they're not. Some of them are incredibly unhelpful, deluded, harmful, destructive, and plain wrong. Um, so that's one big thing that's been lost, I think, is that ability to criticise uh, feelings and to have the language for saying, you should be worried about these things. You shouldn't be just celebrating them and expressing them all over the place. That's very, very good. That's very helpful advice. Now, one thing you mentioned, I did, this might be in left field, so if you want to punt the question, you're welcome to, Mm -hmm. if you don't have any thoughts on it. But you mentioned empathy. So I don't know about in your context, in my context, like a year ago, there was this whole blow up over, someone wrote an article basically saying empathy is sort of a vice, that we shouldn't want to have that. Do you have any opinion? Is empathy a good thing? Is it a bad (laughs) thing? What should we make of empathy? There's a book, uh, I don't know if it's the same author you're thinking of, so Paul Bloom wrote a book called Against Empathy, mm. and I have to issue a disclaimer, I've not read it, but I've read about it. <laughs> it's one of those books where you know, I'm aware of it. He's, he's a professor of psychology at Yale. And so you may maybe tell me if what you read is different, but the gist, well, one part of his argument, as I recall, is that empathy is dangerous because we tend to feel empathy for people like us, people like ourselves. Uh, I mean, in a way, the whole idea is you're trying to feel empathy for people who are not like you. But if you're putting a lot of weight on empathy as the sort of uh, really key sort of cornerstone of morality or moral response, that's risky because a bit like unconscious bias when you're uh, selecting for a, for a, a job or a position or something. Um, we might think we're being empathetic, but really we're going to feel empathy more with people who look and sound and behave like us ourselves. And so I... Um, this may or may not be Paul Bloom, but I've heard this argument and I'm, I'm sympathetic to that argument. And I'm sympathetic also to the argument that it's sort of part of the same bigger picture I was just alluding to. That as a culture, we've become much too uncritical about, about putting important decisions down to feeling. And to almost every previous generation until very recently, it was obvious you shouldn't do that. <laughs> Right, that you shouldn't make important decisions based on your emotions because your emotions are terribly personal. Um, they are representative very strongly of your interests, your beliefs, and your particular perspective on the world. Um, and so, therefore, you need to correct against that by taking other people's uh, perspective into account. And very roughly speaking, that's what reason is. 
reason is saying, okay, what can we all agree on? Okay, let's put this really, you know, unstable, emotional, passionate stuff to one side. Um, you know, you love this, I hate that, whatever. What can we agree on about how we want to live and how we want to treat each other? And generally speaking, massively sweeping statements here, but, you know, most prior generations realised that feeling was a bad basis for that. Um, and so I'm sympathetic. I don't know what the article you read said a, a year ago, but I'm sympathetic to the idea that we should be much more wary of empathy. And I heard a good podcast episode recently about this as well. There's a podcast called The Allusionist, which is about language and words, and it had, took a little look at empathy and sentiment and sentimentality. And they had some good people on there I was nodding vigorously to these arguments about why we should be aware and be wary of empathy. Okay, very awesome. Yeah, I, I honestly don't remember all that goes into that article, but I want to spend some time before we run out um, on, because I'm just curious about it, and I think a lot of our listeners are, on how emo the category of emotion implies to the theological doctrine of things like divine impassibility. So I think probably most of our listeners would want to say, yes, I affirm impassibility. So maybe walk me through some of the challenges that emotion might present to it if, if they are insurmountable, if someone wants to affirm that. Well, I think maybe this could maybe be more of a conversation rather than me um, telling you that because you're probably much more up to speed than I am with, with this as a sort of live theological uh, discussion. You know, it's 20 years since I was last in a, in a theology faculty. Um, obviously... Well, I, I read you that quote from Aquinas uh, earlier, and that is interesting because he, I assume, one of the things in his mind is how do we deal with the fact that uh, of divine impassibility, that God is perfect and unmoved, the unmoved mover, and yet we kind of want to ascribe emotional states to God and the angels, as Aquinas puts it in that passage. God is love is an obvious uh, point that we need to make sense of um, but also looking to the bible the famous passages uh, of god expressing other what we would now call emotions especially anger uh, the the lord your god is a jealous god um, vengeance is mine says the lord uh, you mentioned earlier a book about god and emotions so you'll know much more than me about this so um i think what i would say is that my research again draws attention to ways you might think about this problem and, and looks a little little bit of the way that people like Augustine and Aquinas tried to deal with this problem that in, in a way the more perfect you get the less emotional you get um, but not wanting to make God into a stoic I mean so both Augustine and Aquinas are quite anti-stoicism um, there's a really nice quote from Aquinas sorry from Augustine that I use quite often where he says and he's talking now about human beings so I will come back to God but he's talking about human beings he says uh, anyone who achieves a complete peace of mind complete apatheia lack of passion um, in the way that the Stoics advocate has rather lost all humanity than attained true peace. I think it's an amazing uh, sort of saying. So he's not anti all emotions, certainly not for human beings. Um, look, I'm just rambling on here. What do you think? <laughs> well, I don't, I, I've often wondered if the, the switch in language makes the discussion more complicated because people who want to affirm impassibility are using older terms like passion uh, mm. versus appetite. Whereas today, how a lot of people think of emotions, it seems that that's a little bit of, of a blurring of the category. So I've wondered if some emotions would naturally be off limits for something like that, but not all of them would necessarily be off limits or maybe not all the entailments of what we would think of as an emotion. So 
thinking of something like love, uh, if that counts as an emotion. Mm. Well, that's, not, I mean, sorry. I mean, but that's a no, really good ahead. question. You just flagged up yeah. there, whether love counts as an emotion. Um, so just to plug my next publication, um, I've just finished writing a very short introduction to the history of emotions, which, where all your emotion questions will be answered. And but anyway, the final chapter is about love. And I actually framed that whole chapter around is love an emotion or not? You know, should love even be in this book? And as you can guess, there's, there's evasive historical answers that don't really kind of come down one side or the other. But um it's a good question. And I think starting with love as an emotion is problematic. And there are loads of reasons for, for that. But I think thinking about this question of divine impassibility and divine love, I think is a good illustration of what's what's limited about thinking about the emotions. Because I don't know about you, it just feels like it doesn't quite fit, right? It just, it, you're in two very different registers there and very different sets of concepts. And when you say that when one says that God is love, you don't mean God is a feeling. Uh, God is a sort of fleeting feeling that you have towards another human being, however nice and valuable and positive that feeling. You don't mean that. I mean, I'm not trying to tell you what you do mean, but it's not about an emotion, is it? Um, it's, it's, it's something much bigger or more metaphysical than that. Okay. Yeah, that, I think that helps. And I, I've often wondered, uh, along with the terminology and the questions that come with that, if... Th- if we take emotion in sort of like the 19th century sort of bodily sense, it seems pretty easy to say, well, God doesn't have those because he doesn't have a body. Mm. Um, so the terminology is just doesn't even apply. Am I, am I thinking about that right? Well, but you need to, I mean, I don't know what, do you, what, what would theologians say about the, the, the jealousy and anger of, of God? Yeah. So I think uh, a lot of them are going to say, well, that's sort of, uh, they'll use the terminology of like accommodated language where, it's not something that he would he really has is trying to explain something that's distinct and different there is some sort of connection point um, but what but is it, it? i mean i'm not expecting you to be able to answer all this but what is it yeah i mean i i think augustine and aquinas are in, probably doing something along those lines yeah, that they're yeah. trying they're trying to say to understand god we use this feeling language and what aquinas is doing again in that quote that i used earlier he's trying to separate the human uses and the divine uses but still, he's using the same language and he's drawing that parallel. So there's some parallel there. So the, I think the difficult question then is, what is the parallel? You know, there's not no parallel. Um, it makes some sense, even in an accommodated human sense, to yeah. talk about God being loving, angry, and other emotions, as we now call them. Yeah. Um, so I think that is a difficult question, which luckily I don't have to answer because I'm not in a sort of theology seminar. Uh, but you and your listeners do have to answer, you know, what is that parallel if it's not having a human body and it's not having sweaty palms and not literally going red in the face and shouting? What is the content there that is overlapping? Yeah, I mean, there's some of our listeners would just want to say, well, there, there it is a, a direct parallel and that's why we should deny the doctrine of impassibility. Um, okay. I, I don't, I don't think, I don't, I don't want to do that. Um, Personally, because I think there's a, a lot of historical warrant for for that belief, and I like to stand sort of in the stream of great thought on that. But I also think there are uh, other good theological reasons for wanting to maintain it, aside from the challenges that come from thinking about what do we do with this question of emotions and and passions and appetites and how that all fits in there. Um, but I, I do want to hear from you. So you you talk in your book about uh, sort of how. There's a thesis that Western thinkers were prone to a negative view of emotion. Mm. Um, I think you disagree with that thesis to some degree. Could you walk me through what's going on there? 
Yeah, definitely. In fact, that's one of the things I, I revisited in preparation for this podcast, because I, I remember one book in particular, which was very, very influential for me, which I really recommend, which is called The Passions uh, by Robert Solomon. Uh, it, uh, the subtitle is Emotions and the Meaning of Life. It was first published in 1976. And it's one of those books, which again, your listeners will be familiar with. I just sort of stumbled across on a shelf in a library somewhere when I was looking at the books next to it and just picked it up. Um, lovely experience you have when you're, when you're doing sort of postgraduate work. And, um, it was great. It was really compelling. You know, one of those books, quite a rare experience when you start reading it and you think, yes, God, finally, someone writing about the thing that I really, really want to think about. Um, and Robert Solomon was a, a sort of, a popularizer of existentialist philosophy in America. Uh, he was quite prolific. He wrote a lot of books, a lot of them about emotions. There's a lot of Robert Solomon books and essays about different aspects of the philosophy of emotions. Um, he broadly is in a sort of cognitive camp. You know, emotions are judgments. Uh, uh, in fact, that, that, well, I'll resist the temptation to get off into Sartre and existentialism, which is fascinating on this as well, the, the sort of Sartrean view of emotions. Anyway, get back to the main point. That book, The Passions, brilliant. It's a brilliantly written, very entertaining, very lively. You can really sense that the sort of the, the, the passion in the book. But I take issue with that book um, in my in my book uh, because of this history of ideas that it perpetuates, which I've come across in a lot of other places as well. So I love the Robert Solomon book, but I take issue with his history of ideas because it's rather schematic. Uh, looking at Christian thinkers, I can't remember if he mentions Augustine and Aquinas by name, but Christian thought, and then a Descartes and Cartesianism. There's this rather broad brush. I certainly came across this in my own uh, undergraduate education. The people were very down on the emotions until sort of until what? Until the existentialists came along and then suddenly everyone realised that emotions were, were, were good. So, it, I mean, that's unfair to Solomon. He doesn't put it that starkly. But he has this thing called the myth of the passions. Um, and there's also a famous book called Descartes' Error um, by a, a neuroscientist called Damasio. And both the myth of the passions and Descartes' Error, this rather schematic view that... Everyone was really down on the emotions throughout pretty much the whole of the history of Western thought, especially Christians and especially Stoics. Now, based on what I've already been saying about passions being pathological and that we should remember that, that might seem that I'm saying the same thing. But the point of my work and my book was to say, if you remember the pathology of the passions and the most troubling and irrational um, passions only, then you're only remembering half the picture of those Christian and secular philosophers uh, that we're talking about, because all of them put next to that view of the passions, these views about affections, sentiments, feelings, even the Stoics have a category called uh, eupatheiae, which are like good feelings, um, even the Stoics. Uh, uh, so it doesn't really hold up to scrutiny, this view that there's this huge Western anti-emotional uh, kind of philosophy that's dominant. And my argument in the book is that the reason it might look that way is because we've lumbered ourselves with this single homogenous category of the emotions. And so when we see Stoics and others writing about the danger of the passions, we misread that as all emotions are bad, whereas in fact they're not saying that. That's kind of potted version of my objection to Solomon. But I wanted to start with my enthusiasm for him because that book is really, really worth reading. Yeah, that, that's very good. So you started to talk a little bit about Sartre and history of emotions and how that goes. I would be interested if you can give me the five minute overview of what's going on there. If you can't, then we can talk about something else. But that sounded well, I, I don't think I'm gonna be able to get up to five minutes because again, it's quite a few years. <laughs> um, 
Sartre has a very idiosyncratic essay called A Sketch of a Theory of the Emotions, which I've gone back to a couple of times in my career. And it's one of those texts which I think does repay sort of careful reading, like if you were having a seminar or something and wanted an interesting, slightly different take on emotions, because it does not fit into any of the uh, theories that we've been sort of mapping out in this conversation so far. It's not a reductionist William James type theory, but it's also not a stoic, pure cognitive view. It kind of it's its own, as you would expect for Sartre, I guess. It's, it's its own um, own thing. I would say it's probably got elements of psychoanal- psychoanalytic thought in it. It characterises emotions as sort of magical thinking. So what it shares with the cognitive view is that it is my beliefs that are really bringing this sort of state of feeling into play. Um, and what it shares with the stoic view is that they might be very deluded and false beliefs bringing that feeling into play uh, and what it shares with the psychoanalytic view is um, they might be you know fantastical deluded uh, uh, beliefs or an attempt even to enact the world being different than it is in a kind of complete denial so it's a weirdly sort of negative take on emotions um, and that's interesting to me in that certainly Robert Solomon um, is an interesting figure because he was coming the two, his two sort of big contributions to philosophy were popularizing existentialist thought and popularizing this quite positive view of emotions so it's of a moment in the 1960s and 70s um the kind of uh, yes or pro-emotion and pro-existentialism kind of moment but Sartre himself is um I think maintains a much more negative view um which I think is one of the things that is is probably missing uh, from Solomon and many others sort of more more p- positive views of emotions. The idea that emotions are cognitive and wrong, <laughs> uh, which again, maybe you get more from psychoanalysis, maybe you get more uh, in Sartre if you want to go somewhere where you're going to get a modern sort of neo-Stoic take uh, on emotions of, of a different kind. I don't know if that makes a bit of sense. That does make sense. So the last thing I want to talk with you about is just how do you think the history of all this can really help us to think about these topics in contemporary thought today. Yeah. Well, I, um, I know my answer to that because I just wrote the preface to my, to my book and I had to kind of boil it down to sort of two sentences. Like, why have I written this book? So two reasons. Uh, one, the history of emotions just enriches our understanding of history. You know, the people in the past, although we know this, we sometimes forget did have sort of pulsing, throbbing sweaty anxious bodies like ours um from the you know the most powerful people to the most normal people the thinkers that we study the theologians um so to put all that emotion back in can sort of bring a bit of color and life and realism to our understanding of the past which we might sometimes forget and so for me i've mentioned augustine loads of times already for me reading augustine's confessions was complete and utter eye-opener for me as a phd student and it, it, it coalesced a lot of my thoughts both conceptually but also as you probably know, it's just an incredibly human and vivid book. And I it, it, I loved that book because it at the same time made me realise what a very different world Augustine lived in from the one that I lived in. But at the same time, also, I felt like he understood me. Now, that may well have been complete fantasy and projection on my part, but it, 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 it brought to life for me that, that important tension between continuity and change in human feeling. On the one hand, I felt like I, this guy understood me and I understood him. On the other hand, he was living in a different world um, that was obviously different in important respects. So bringing the emotion and the colour back to, to, to our understanding of the past. And the second, and for me, really most important reason, 
is to liberate ourselves from the constraints of particular ways of thinking about the mind in the present. That is the thing that really motivates me. Um, I've been doing a lot of work with schools recently and doing lessons for young children about emotions. And the thing that drives me there is I want them to have the resources to see beyond the what is known as sort of mental health conversation, you know, when it comes to talking about their feelings. I want them to know that there's all sorts of different ways to name and label and interpret their feelings, which are just fine. Everybody is different. There's different words for it. And none of it necessarily means you've got a mental illness or you need to be talking about mental health. I've got a bit of a, a bee in my bonnet about that as well. But it's it's about freeing us from the contemporary categories. When we see the long and varied history of these things, it makes us realise that the emotions didn't exist until really recently. And so therefore, um, there are these many other ways to divide up human physical, mental, spiritual experiences uh, some of which might suit you better than the ones that you've been handed off the shelf um, in our in our own culture. That, that's really helpful. So do you have any other resources that you would recommend for people who are wanting to help with that particular sort of conversation today mm. in their own context? Because at least, I mean, I'm in America. That's something that's becoming more and more prevalent. Everything is becoming a mental illness. So trying to understand and how to diagnose. I think it's a really, think. really pressing issue. And I have to not think about it too much because I find it quite upsetting, honestly. Uh, but yeah, it's a pressing issue for, for, on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, well, I don't. Um, well, first of all, I mean, just in terms of uh, I know this isn't what you were asking, but people can go to our website, which is called The Emotions Lab theemotionslab.org and, and it's got a few short essays, blog posts, quite a lot of audio podcasts. There's also a, a tab there for our school's work so you can take a look at what we've been doing with school. So that gets a flavour of what me and my colleagues at Queen Mary have been doing. More broadly, it's just a massive challenge, isn't it? I mean, I know there are there are sort of critical psychiatry networks, what used to be called anti-psychiatry. Um, the problem with them is, as in that phrase, anti-psychiatry, which gets thrown at them, is it's very hard to have this conversation without ending up sounding like you're anti the whole of psychiatry, um, which is obviously a profession that does a lot of good for people. So it's very difficult. I'm relatively optimistic. It, it seems to me, certainly in this country, in the UK, there are more and more voices from within mainstream psychology and psychiatry questioning this um, this sort of too easy transition from having strong feelings to having a mental illness. There's an excellent book um, by someone called Dr. Lucy Folks, um, and I can give you the details and maybe put it in the episode notes. Um, came out in the last year or so, um, exactly on this topic. She's, she's a, a British psychologist, and it's a really helpful introduction to the sort of state of the, the science in terms of mental health, especially in young people, and trying to sort of draw those boundaries back a bit to say, you know, um, we need to make sure children understand in particular that they can have strong feelings and that's okay. And that doesn't mean that they need medication or therapy. Very, very helpful. I mean, so sometimes they do need those things, right? Yeah. That's the thing. It's so complicated. You know, I don't want to be getting up on a bandwagon and dismissing the whole of, um, you know, mental health industry, much of which is hugely valuable. So it's difficult to try and get the tone right as well, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's right. And I, I think that you, you nailed it. So okay. <laughs> um, I appreciate you walking us through this whole conversation, giving us some great resources. So if people want to continue to follow along with your work, is the theemotionslab.org the best place to go? Yeah, that's a good place to go and follow me on Twitter, Prof Thomas Dixon, and follow Emotions History on Twitter. Um, follow Lucy Folks <laughs> and get in touch with people want to ask more and have more of a conversation. 
Very awesome. So everybody's been listening. I definitely recommend you check out his work. Uh, as you can tell from the interview, he's he, he's very nuanced. He's careful. He's he's uh, wise in how he's handling these things. So he's a great, tremendous resource that I recommend. Uh, and everybody who's been listening, as you know, this is the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.